Welcome to our presentation, Year of the Locust, the CDC Guidelines um, Impact on Practitioners and Patients. Our faculty this morning is Dr. Gary Jay, who is a clinical professor at the University of North Carolina Department of Neurology and chairs for, remind me? Division of Headache and Pain. Oh, Division of Headache and Pain. Very esteemed faculty, please help me welcome Dr. Gary Jay. Thank you all, and good morning. And basically, one of the things I learned yesterday from watching Dr. Zakharoff's phenomenal lectures is it's okay to be emotional, so I'm here to tell you I'm angry. And what I want to talk about today is basically the hypocrisy that's out there dealing with the conflation of data on overdose and all to the neglect of chronic pain patients, the people we're here to help. So what I want to do is go a little deeper. Kevin gave a talk through 2015. I'm starting in 2016 when we were blessed with the CDC guidance. <coughs> so we'll talk about this. So um, I'll move these chairs. This is amazing. Usually they have something up here. I'm going to be sticking around one area because I'm going to be reading. I don't like reading slides word for word, but there's a lot of quotes that I need to read you exactly as the people who stated them or wrote them meant them. So our agenda, I've added one thing to the agenda, which is a possible solution. And also, I want to talk about possibly the real or one of the real villains in this whole saga that nobody talks about. So let's get started. The facts you know. There are more Americans with chronic pain than there are Americans with cancer, diabetes, stroke, and heart disease. 100 million Americans, more than that. At least 10 million Americans to 11 million Americans are taking opioids or were taking opioids on a daily basis, okay? We know that the money in 2010 dollars, because those are the last years that we have information for, ranged from $560 billion a year to $635 billion a year. We know that. We also know that in spite of everything we have, all the opioids and everything else, 50 to 75% of cancer patients who die do so in moderate to severe pain. One reason is if you talk to the hospice docs now. Anybody here doing hospice? How many of you can get all the pain meds you need in your hospice? This is a problem. Here are the facts where you can, if you download this, you can find the information I'm telling you right there. There's the URLs. The CDC guidelines, I'm not going through them, okay? I just want to talk about them and some of the problems that they have created for us. Okay, we're all in this together. That's why we're here, okay? As a pain specialist for going back 38, 39 years, I can tell you uh, I've seen a lot of change. From 1999 to 2014, there were more than 165,000 deaths, supposedly from opioid overdose only. In 2014, they stated that there were 14,000 people that died of a narcotic or opioid overdose, okay? Most commonly, they implicated methadone, okay. That only 3,000 deaths, as you'll see. Oxycodone and hydrocodone. We won't go into opioid naive, opioid tolerant, but we will go into the fact that uh, if you can't find a legal medication, what used to happen was patients would find a legal or pharmaceutical grade opioid on the street. Thanks to the DEA, and as of next year, there's another 10% cut in the manufacture of opioids. So in three years, about 40 to 50% of the manufactured opioids in 2016 are gone. My hospital at UNC has problems getting parenteral opioid 
in the ED and on the floor. Okay. Now, if you are a patient needing an opioid and the manufacturer has been cut that significantly, what are you going to do if you can't get it? We'll talk about it. Okay, so we were gifted, we were blessed with the CDC guidelines in March of 2016. Now, the purpose or the intent of these guidelines were supposedly to talk about chronic persistent pain and state what we all know, it's three months or more. It was to look at the fact that supposedly there were very few studies that had prolonged outcomes. Okay, the fact that many of us have treated with chronic opioids pain patients for anywhere from three to ten years in my case with no issue of drug misuse, drug abuse, addiction. None. They claim there is no data for that. I'll show you some. The guidelines were supposed to improve communication between clinicians and patients. Have they done that? No. Right on. Whoever said that, right. But the bottom line recommendation, the whole point of this guidance, was to, treat, was to talk to primary care docs about treating new patients in their outpatient facilities. And what happened? Ain't necessarily so. Basically, this guidance has now been adopted, adapted, and mutated. Everybody know that CMS now uses this guidance? Anybody know that? Okay. One of my first major introductions, other than seeing it when it came out, was when in North Carolina, where I practice, the, in January of 2017, at a meeting, they just threw out all of their written opioid guidances and said, you know what, we'll just plug this in as of now. And what that did was make it so that this guidance was no longer about and for primary care doctors. It also affected me as a pain specialist for all these years. It affected everybody to the point that while I'm in the Department of Neurology, of course, we have an anesthesia-run pain center or pain clinic, which is basically interventional activity. And they stopped writing opioids as much as they can. They stopped. This is the pain center. You can't get an opioid. And I'll show you an example of an email I got last week from a patient of mine seeing there. Here are the first five papers that I could find out of a number of them showing that there are plenty of data showing the usefulness of opioids for more than three months. Now, there are 12 recommendations in the CDC guidelines, all right? And they're grouped into three areas. To determine when to initiate and utilize meds, which ones you should select and why, and risk assessment. How do you do your risk assessment, okay? Now, let's go back. Sackett would be rolling over in his grave. Sackett, in 1996, wrote the first book on evidence-based medicine and why it's important. He was an Englishman. Basically, here's one very easy way of looking at evidence-based medicine, types one through four, all right? Type four is, you know, using a little Yiddish for anybody that knows it, it's a bubamoinses, grandmother's stories, all right? Oh, yeah, you know, I did this once, and this is what happened, and you know what? I'm an expert, so that's real. And that's baloney. But the bottom line of these guidances were that numbers 1 through 11 were weak or very weak in evidence-based medicine, and only number 12, stating the use of buprenorphine and methadone for opioid use disorder was appropriate, had strong evidence. Everything else was weak or very weak, and that's what we are under the thumb of. All right? Now, what is this stuff? I'm going to call one of my... my colleague, Dr. Barkin, but first I just want to make a couple of comments on MMEs, morphine milligram equivalents, which you know we're supposed to be giving patients between 50 and 90 morphine milligram equivalents. Do you know what they are? Did you know that because it was equianalgesia, 
morphine milligram equivalents were supposed to also enable us to determine the effectiveness of gabapentin, Tegretol, other medications than opioids in terms of MMEs. A gentleman named Nielsen, who wrote the paper on this, stated, quote, as the intent of publishing these conversion factors is to offer a transparent method to calculate oral morphine equivalents for research purposes, these calculations do not reflect those individual factors that may be important in clinical practice, end quote. That's what we're living under. Let me put it another way. I've got, or you've got, a 150-pound patient. Is the 50-milligram MME for that person the same as the 50-milligram MME for my 300-pound patient? I don't think so. But to them, it's supposed to be. Now, I'm going to make one comment in here and then ask Dr. Barkin, who, and I'll introduce him in a moment. This is the CDC purported equianalgesic narcotic chart. When I see an equianalgesic narcotic chart, when all of you do, the first thing that I check is morphine is always stereotypic. That's a one. Or if it's chronic, 30 milligrams. Okay, it's acute, 60. Then I look at oxycodone. Oxycodone is almost always 0.66, two-thirds, or one. Okay, now if you look at this, you see that oxycodone is 1.5. That's just wrong. Now, let me call Dr. Robert Barkin, who's a professor in multiple departments at Rush University, he's a PharmD, and only outstanding. Dr. Barkin, would you like to say something? You want to talk about that first, like the methadone aspects? Uh, methadone, I personally... Wait, is that... That's not on. Or, or you're not... There's a little time delay. Come on. Thank you. Ah, uh, the magic. <laughs> I personally don't use the chart for methadone. There's a comment in methadone in the package insert that states... You have to be well-qualified and specialized to use methadone. It's not an out-the-door, on-the-bus agent. Its kinetics are completely different from every other opioid. It peaks between day three and day five, so you can't chase the drug. So when I look at this chart, I kind of like put my hand back on it and say, eh, this is not for us. Start low, go slow. There's no need to use this chart for methadone. Besides from that, we're going to talk... Uh, the word equal analgesic dose, equal analgesic, if you use the charts, 40% of the time you're going to be too high, 40% of the time you're too low, 20% of the time, one-fifth, you're on the mark. So it's only a place to begin. And many of you have asked me at the meetings while we're here, what do I do? I cut the equal analgesic dose, quote-unquote, in half. Half of it is long-acting, and half of it is for breakthrough pain short-acting to find out where you're at. So design it for the patient. You don't have any patients that fit this chart. Remember from yesterday, the other day, they're all special. Fair enough, we have the next one. Depend uh, it all. Phase two metabolism, 85% of it is phase two, 15% is phase one, that's 2D6 and 2C9, so I'm not worried about genetic polymorphism. No active opioid metabolite, unlike hydrocodone, oxycodone, and morphine. It's a mu receptor agonist and blocks reuptake on the descending pathway. It's, and its MMEs are based on mu receptor agonist. How Look that, at the bottom. What? Look at the bottom. Depend at all, MME. Yeah, 0. 0. 0.4. 0. 0.4. I'm, that appalls me. But in any event, what's the maximum dose on Depend at all? Well, we'll go through that. Okay, we'll go through that. Okay. So here's, here's your. Extra. And uh, you're, you're 90 MME of, uh, per day for dependent all. The NME is calculated by day, taking the amount of morphine 
In this case, we're looking at 90 milligrams, dividing it by the MME, which is 0.4, and that's stated in the guideline. For example, 90 milligrams of morphine divided by 0.4 is going to end up at 225 milligrams of dipentadol a day, which is roughly uh, fourth, uh, no, uh, the total dose should be no more than 600 to 500 milligrams a day, and that's what they ended up with this. And then calculation for it again is how much would 50 milligrams of morphine translate to for <clears throat> dipentadol using the CDC guidelines of 0.4 MMEs. Divide the dose by 0.4, you get the total daily dose for, that <clears throat> for the morphine to be, <clears throat> to be 125 milligrams of dipentadol. I'll take the next one. Okay. Calculations to remember using the CDC guidelines of 0.4 for dipentadol, 90 milligrams of morphine, 225 milligrams of dipentadol. 100 milligrams of morphine, 250 milligrams of dipentadol. Think how much your patients are on in dipentadol and then go backwards. You're going to say, wait, this isn't right. And then 120 milligrams of morphine equivalent to less than, less than the full dose of dipentadol each day. So dipentadol is a mu receptor agonist, norepinephrine reuptake. And these are based on mu receptor activity, which is now known that that activity in these slides and the conversions is completely wrong. So the FDA approved a maximum limit for Nucenta of 500 milligrams a day, which is 250 Q12, and the uh, maximum dosage of Nucenta, not the ER, is 600 milligrams a day, but you can go up to 700 milligrams a day on the first day. So you can see that don't use the chart at all for Tepentadol. Okay, anything else, Dr. G? Uh, well, well, okay, here, here's a table that I developed, and this is, it's an old table. It's from 2011 when the agent first came out, and we have our equivalents on there. A buprenorphine, 0.3 parenteral is equal to 0.4 of the buccal film. Codeine no longer available in the States, and it was sub-Q only. And then in fentanyl, uh, that's 0.1. Uh, nothing, of course, equivalent orally. Hydrocodone, I have 20 to 30, as I also had, this is back in 11, as we had for oxycodone. We didn't find, this is a personal chart. And remember, these charts are unidirectional. They go from the left to the right. So how much of the injectable is equal to how much of the drug orally? It's not bidirectional. So that's the, uh, the and, and that's the mistake many people have been making since these charts first came out. And they came out when Moses part of the Red Sea. So that's a long time ago. Tramadol not yet available. It's available in the, it, excuse me. It's probably in phase four studies. If not, it's available. Going to be available in the states. It's available in Europe, and there is no translation there for it. And to pentadol, then we said it's over 100, 150 for an equivalent of 30 milligrams of morphine each day. Okay, thank, thank you. Thank you, All right. Professor. Okay. Here's one last comment on that. Ask Dr. Google, okay? Just Google narcotic equianalgesic charts, and you'll get a slew of them, and you'll probably find five or six different versions where morphine is one and oxycodone is anywhere from 0.5 to 5. I mean, it's absurd, which is why, as I stated, and as Dr. Barkin stated, don't use them. If you don't know what you're doing, Stay away from them because more people get killed, literally, by doctors who don't know how to use these charts and patients don't use them. So the guideline going back is clearly oriented to new patients. It's not oriented to what happens when I get all these older folk who've been on meds for years. What do I do? So, actually, we need to go back even further. Here's a question. According to the CDC guidelines, patients, primary care docs who have patients in pain, have 25% of them addicted to medications. How many of you have a practice with 25% of your practice patients addicted to medication? Who would tolerate that? Anybody here do that? I actually asked this question pain weekend and five people put their hand up and I goggled. I said, what? Not Googled, I goggled. 
Okay? So the point is that some of the basic information that was brought to us in these guidelines is just wrong. So what's missing from the guidelines? How do you deal with the older patients? How not to develop guidelines. I've done my share of guidelines, been on committees developing guidelines for all sorts of things. But here's three major problems that you've got to not be doing, which is what was done here. One, total lack of iterative evaluation. What does that mean? It means when you finish a guideline, you put a date and say in 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, we're going to sit down and see what we have wrought. We're going to make changes to fix problems that were either we never thought of or problems that, you know, we should have considered this happening. But we'd fix it. Didn't happen. You don't make guidelines, which are recommendations. They're not laws. Okay? And you don't make them legal, which freezes them. Therefore, if somebody actually had the intellectual vigor to correct them, you can't because you're now fighting the legal system. Who's going to go up to CMS and say, you know, you're wrong. The guidelines that you are saying we should use are wrong. How many people think CMS is going to take that line down? Okay, not many. Okay, as a healthcare provider, our job is what? To select, know how to select patients, know how to appropriately treat them. Okay, opioid analgesic overdoses. Three or four slides from now, you'll get blown out of your seat. The guidelines, opioid analgesics, are typically one of the most common reasons for an overdose. You don't count the stuff the way the CDC guidelines did. Overdose deaths from prescription painkillers, prescription painkillers, increased. Okay, in 2010, they were 16,651, which was four times the number in 1999. Okay, but after that, it decreased. It decreased by 13% annually from 1999 to 2009. And since 2009, deaths from prescription opioids are stable at 3% per year. So you're not seeing what you saw yesterday, which was from fentanyl you know, astronomical numbers. Risks, when you give a patient an opioid, you took at, do they have obstructive sleep apnea? They say, you know, I always have a headache in the morning, and uh, you want to give them opiates for that? Maybe after a polysomnogram, okay? And maybe after that, if they're on CPAP. Renal or hepatic insufficiency, problems, okay? Older patients, pregnant women, want to be careful. Depression or other DSM-5 diagnoses, you want to be careful because many patients with depressants of any kind, you find increased suicidality, not to mention depression increasing, anxiety increasing. Alcohol and other substance abuse problems. Benzos, okay? I had a patient about, well, a year ago, about this tall, comes in, carrying her, she got two nasal cannula, carrying her oxygen. And she's on 20 milligrams of Xanax. And Oxycontin. Okay, or as Dr. Professor Barkin would call it, Oxycaca. All right, basically, she was on 120 milligrams of that a day. And she wanted me to take care of her. And I said, no. And, oh, the hell that raised. You know, people yelling and screaming and all this stuff. How could I say no? I said, when you get off, I'll be happy to wean you off your Xanax, but I won't give you anything that is an opioid until you're off the Xanax. No. So she left, and two months later, she died. This is serious when we talk about not mixing respiratory depressants. This is serious business. Now, here, this was October, excuse me, April of this year, all right? Seth and three other members of the CDC wrote an article in the American Journal of Public Health, 
and they told the truth. And let me tell you, I'm going to read you what the truth is here. Availability of illicitly manufactured synthetic opioids, such as fentanyl, that traditionally were prescription medications has increased. This has blurred the lines between prescription and illicit opioid-involved deaths. A quote. Another quote. Traditionally, the CDC and others have included synthetic opioid deaths in estimates of prescription opioid deaths. However, with IMF illicitly manufactured fentanyl and derivatives likely being involved more recently, estimating prescription opioid-involved deaths with the inclusion of synthetic opioid-involved deaths would significantly inflate estimates. So what did they do? How much did they inflate it, do you think? Using the CDC's traditional definition for prescription opioids, the CDC estimated 32,445 Americans died from overdose deaths, opioid overdose deaths, in 2016. And then they looked at a conservative definition, one that took out the, quote, high proportion of deaths involving synthetic opioids like fentanyl-like compounds. The death toll associated with prescription opiates was cut nearly in half to 17,087, about 50% under the number that everybody is parading around. And then they went further. They said, you know what? Maybe we didn't decrease it enough. This is the CDC talking. The number of deaths involving diverted prescriptions or counterfeit drugs is unknown. So how do we count that? Toxicological tests cannot distinguish between the pharmacology of fentanyl and so-called illicit fentanyl, which has the same recipe, so they're essentially the same drug. So the tests can't tell the difference. How can the CDC or anyone else? The same with heroin. How is heroin metabolized? Turns into morphine. Morphine goes down the tube. Okay, morphine 3-glucuronide, bicarbonate 6 when you're doing these tests and you get morphine-3-glucuronide, where does it say that came from heroin? It says it's got morphine-3-glucuronide. So drugs that are not specifically identified on drug death certificates in over 20% of deaths. Multiple drugs are involved in almost half of drug overdose deaths. Yes, I've spoken to a number of medical examiners, mostly in my state, and the answer I got was, yep, you can find crack, you can find alcohol, you can find barbs, you can find bendos, but if I got a nanogram of opioid, it's an opioid death. That's what's out there. That's what we are being accused of. Because Jennifer, Kevin, they were right last night. Society and the political forces have stated, it's all our fault. Because, after all, we're the only ones with the power to prescribe. So, if we can't get real factual information, how do we know what the truth is? This is another two slides that are very interesting from Rudd. At autopsy, the substances that are tested and the circumstances under which they're tested, including the determination of which drugs are present depends on the place, the jurisdiction, and the time. They're different. The percent of deaths with specific drugs identified on the death certificate varies by jurisdiction in the state as well as by time. In 2015, no, 14, there was 19%. 2015, there was 14% or 17% of drug overdose deaths. All right, but the problem was certificates did not include specific doses or drugs. In addition, the percent of drug deaths with specific drugs identified ranged from 47.4 in some states to 99% in others. So now, you don't have to be a statistician. Can you look at those two and try to equate them? I don't think so. So the variation in reporting across states prevents the comparison that we keep reading about. Improvements in testing have shown what we discussed before. Fentanyl looks like fentanyl. 
Morphine looks like metabolized heroin. So what are we really looking at? We don't know. Heroin and morphine are metabolized. As we said, state-specific analyses of opioid deaths are restricted in terms of 28 states can you be equivalent, at least in 2016. So what happened then? It was an orgy of breast beating. Okay, thank you, King Kong. The issue was, I've been doing this since 1980, all right? And what happened then, all right? The doctors that used pain meds used them for decades. And they used them, and they used them, and there was never a problem that they thought of. However, all of a sudden, since the CDC guidelines have come down to the pike, these guys have reconsidered. Excuse me, these gentlemen and ladies have reconsidered. All of a sudden, opioids are not appropriate for anything. All right? And it's perfectly appropriate to decrease by 50%, 75%, or take a patient off of all opioids because self-help. All right? I don't want to lose my license because somebody's looking at me now, and they're looking at everybody in this audience. Hyperalgesia, seen in animals. We have evidence-based medicine of opioid-induced hyperalgesia in animals, but we don't have any EBM of that in humans. Anybody know of any? I don't. Many docs, thanks to the CDC guidelines, have used the CDC guidelines as their excuse to stop prescribing opiates. And we'll talk about some reasons why. Now, here's an attorney. Now, there is no better attorney in my mind than Jennifer Bowen who you heard last night. I've known Jennifer over 20 years. She is probably the best attorney dealing with medications issues like this that I've ever met in my life, and I would trust her implicitly. Here's another attorney. I don't know him, but from Univetus, he had these things to say, how to avoid the opioid prescriber dragnet. And here were his topics, okay? And this was March of this year. Keep records documenting diagnosis, treatment, and overall care of patients. We know that. If it isn't done, if you don't write it down, it's not done. Ensure that patient charts demonstrate an in-depth examination has taken place. Be aware whether the practice's appointment list appears to reflect an unreasonably large number of patients in a single day. I was asked to look at a place in Florida. They went from seeing 25 patients a day, one doctor, he brought in two NPs, and it went up to 160 patients a day. Yeah, I wondered about that too. And when investigating and walking in and talking, basically the night before, the doc signed a bunch of prescriptions, and the nurses filled them out the next day. And they only filled them out if there was $200 in cash lying on a table. Florida, one reason we have the CDC guidelines. So we always write prescriptions in front of the patient. We don't write them and give them to somebody else to fill out. You avoid you don't want to give patients or prescribe and sell the patients their narcotics from your office. You really don't want to do that. You don't want to prescribe controlled substances for your family, your friends, your neighbors, okay? Anybody that owes you money. You don't want to do that. And you don't want to write a prescription for a patient you have not examined, ever. Now, with this very appropriate list. They're missing two things right off the bat that you can think of. Number one is you need to do testing using things like the ORT, uh, Lynn Webster's ORT, or the SOAP-R to help evaluate risk of opioid misuse, abuse, and addiction. Need to do that. You also, in some jurisdictions, in some states, in some cities, you need to look at the patient 
medication report from the state before you give a prescription. And you need to document that. And if you look at that and the web is down, the website is down, you've got to document in your chart that on 2 o'clock on April 4th, I tried looking at this site, it was down. The patient says it's, you know, that they're clear. That's what they stated. I have nothing that I can say or see to be a reason not to give them a prescription. You've got to document it. We talked about the North Carolina board. I mentioned that. CMS. Anybody keeping track of what's going on in Oregon? Anybody know what's going on in Oregon? Okay, a few hands. The Oregonians figure perfectly okay. If you have Medicaid, we're going to wean you off of all opioids within 12 years, and nobody on Medicaid will ever get an opioid. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? But it's true. They're still dealing with some of the issues, but that's what the plan is. Now, think about something. This is not just a matter of low socioeconomic class, people that can't afford good insurance, because what happens to the cancer patient with adequate insurance who has problems paying for cancer treatment, who ends up having to sell their house, mortgage their house, do whatever they have to do, and slowly they may, they may get through the cancer, but they're not able to get insurance and they end up with Medicaid. These people are affected too. Another large group of affected patients are women with breast cancer who are now able to beat it. And the use of cisplatin and other problems like that, oh, radiation, things like that, create a significant peripheral neuropathy. So they get finished. They, they, their cancer is cured. But no one will give them pain meds for their peripheral neuropathy there's a foundation in the UK with over 240 women with that problem. There's more than that number here in the United States, but there's no foundation to help them. DEA, you're all aware, and I mentioned it earlier, 2017, 18, they've reduced amount of manufacture. They have another 10% reduction scheduled for 19, 2019. And it's specifically for the six most utilized opiates. Now, there's an online survey of 3,108 3, pain patients, 43 docs, 235 other clinicians. And this was conducted in March, February to March of last year by the Pain News Network and the International Pain Foundation, which is an, a good organization. Some questions were to be answered by the docs, some by the patients. And the survey said the guidelines, this is about the CDC guidelines, the guideline harmed pain patients reducing access to pain care and failed to reduce drug abuse and overdoses. These are all answers by pain patients. Over 70% of pain patients say that they're no longer prescribed opioid medications or are getting a lower dose. Eight out of 10 patients say their pain and quality of life are worse. Who would have thunk it? But 84.23% of patients stated, quote, I have more pain and my quality of life is worse, end quote. And 42%, 50% of that number are now thinking about suicide. <clears throat> to quote Professor Barkin, we must prescribe and create a patient-specific, patient-focused, patient-centered, personalized treatment plan for everybody with headache and pain. All right? How many people give opioids to a headache patient? Thank you. That's something I won't do because it develops opioid-induced analgesic rebound. Okay, people did that. There was a time about a decade ago, a little more than that, when it was thought that, ah, we can cure headaches with opioids. 
Not a good idea. Unintended consequences. There's a paper by Smith that states, and don't faint, individuals with pain had a 29% increased risk of dying, while those who reported quite a bit or extreme pain had a 38% or 88% increased risk of dying, but it wasn't from the pain. The risk of dying was from all the disruption that the pain caused in their lives, including the fact that they couldn't walk, they couldn't take care of things, and suicide is counted here as one of the main risks of dying. Persistent pain is associated with faster memory decline and increased probability of dementia. How about that? Another paper, Innes, osteoarthritis and related joint pain are strongly associated with memory loss. And look up above, memory loss, faster memory decline, is associated with what? Dementia. Unanticipated risks. And what are we doing when we take down patients' opioids? This. Now, let's talk about a genius. Everybody know what PROP is? PROP is the Physicians for Responsible Opioid Prescribing. These were the people in 2012 who wrote a screed to the FDA stating, you've got to take out the words moderate and severe pain from the labels. You should only give patients 100 milligrams of morphine a day, and you should only give non-cancer pain patients 90 days worth of pain meds, period. And the FDA said, hmm, okay. We don't agree with any of that, but we'll take out the words moderate and severe pain and incorporate language stating that this Medication is for a patient with pain severe enough to warrant the use of opioids around the clock. That's how they got rid of the moderate and severe thing. So anyway, this was Prop, and the founder of Prop is this genius who writes, outside of palliative care, dangerously high doses should be reduced, even if patients refuse. Where exactly is this done in a risky way? Well, let me count the places. Anybody here have to reduce patients' pain meds? Anybody? Yeah. Anybody here enjoy doing that or think it's appropriate? Are you doing it to save your licenses because that's what you got to do? I'm not in any way critical of the fact that we do what we have to do to still be there to help patients to do something. But we're still not playing the game correctly. We're not playing it so the patient wins. So, as we talked about, there are about 10 to 11 million patients in this country on chronic opioids, okay? And they're being weaned and tapered whether or not they like it. Some will agree to it, some won't. But they're doing it because of fears that high doses of opioids can lead to addiction and overdose. But my question is, who's afraid of that? Who is afraid of that, okay? There are various papers that give various numbers that if you go above this thing and if you go above this one and this one, you're increasing the risk of overdose. Really? I've had patients for 10 years. I mean, horrendous thing. In the 1980s, I ran the first privately owned tertiary care interdisciplinary neuro rehab center, and I got patients from Amnesty International who were victims of torture from around the world. And you think what we're doing every day now is tough, you've got to meet with these people. One of the issues yesterday, actually one of the lectures yesterday, it wasn't an issue, um, talked about the use of psychiatric aspects of pain. Absolutely appropriate. They just missed the fact that no one will pay for it. Okay? And the problem is dealing with victims of torture dealing with patients with physical problems who have a traumatic amputation and phantom limb pain. You're going to talk that better? Okay, there's another interesting, there's a, a gentleman, and I've got a slide here, I'll show you, by the name of Dan Laird, who is an MD, JD, here in Las Vegas. And if we had time, I'd, I'd play this clip, but I don't think we will. The issue is 
He notes, as do most other people, that treating patients after you deal, get rid of their opioids, you have nothing left to say or do because by that time, the patients really don't feel that there's any patient-clinician ability to communicate. This is appropriate. Kolodny, he had a bunch of Twitter posts, okay, because research that was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine stated there are 67 clinical, one study, 67 clinical studies were evaluated where tapering was involved, and it was noted that most of the studies were considered very poor quality. Yet, this other genius, Dr. Krebs, said, quote, Although confidence is limited by the very low quality of evidence overall, findings from this systematic review suggest that pain, function, and quality of life may improve during and after opioid dose reduction. Who believes that? Anybody here? Anybody want to raise their hand? I don't see anybody rushing to do that. So the confidence was limited because of the poor quality of studies. Krebs is a member of PROP. I didn't mention this. I'm sorry. The PROP docs don't see pain patients. They're addictionologists. Now, while Krebs said, ah, you know, the terrible data, you know, it's terrible, but it was okay to accept poor data about the benefits of tapering, even though the data was poor about the tapering. So she said, you know, the review found insufficient evidence on adverse events related to opioid tapering, such as accidental overdose. If the patients are off drugs and take a high dose, they may die. Imagine. Kolodny then stated that drugs should be reduced even if the patient refuses. But then Deborah Dowell, who is a senior member of the CDC, said, hold on a minute, okay? It's not a good idea. She states, quote, neither Krebs review nor the CDC guidelines, and you've got to remember, CDC's here, here's the CDC guideline, okay? It's not really a part of the CDC Such practice, getting patients decreased opioids without their permission, could be associated with withdrawal symptoms, damage to the clinician-patient relationship, and patients obtaining opioids from other sources. Duh. Then she went on. Clinicians have a responsibility to carefully manage opioid therapy and not abandon patients in chronic pain. Obtaining patient buy-in before tapering is a critical and not insurmountable Task. That's correct. CDC guidelines don't quite make it that way. The CDC today states there's a go-slow approach, an individualized treatment when patients who want to decrease them maybe 5-10% a week. The VA says, <laughs> what is that? We recommend tapering 5 to 10% uh, to 20% every four weeks, but in some cases, if they have high doses, they want a 20 to 50% daily decrement in opiates. And if the patient, the vet, refuses, because I've had a number of patients that are on doses of opioids, and they tell me, it's to, I want to stay in the armed forces, I want to stay where I am, and I need this to keep going. But according to the VA guidelines, if, you, if the VA doc says, we're going to reduce you, and the patient says no... They're supposed to call the psych people because they will automatically assume the patient has an opioid use disorder. There's a URL. If you download this, look at that URL and look at the patient responses to Kolodny's tweet. Now, a leading pain physician, this guy I've known for 35 years, at his point, before he jumped the shark, he was a real leading pain physician. And he retired. And so he had about 100 patients left in his practice on daily opioids, and he said, I'm going to titrate them all down to nothing because I don't know where they're going to get opioids when I'm gone. And he was, quote, reaction from patients has been less enthusiastic than I had hoped. (laughs) 
many have refused to comply with even starting a tapering program. End quote. Gee, who would have thunk it? Here's another very important point, and I want to ask you afterwards, how many people have seen or read about this? In 1998, Gerkopel wrote in the American Journal of Medicine, conservative calculations estimate 107,000 hospitalizations for NSAID-related GI problems. And on a yearly basis, there were 16,500 deaths. Okay, that was 1998. In 1999, Wolf, Lichtenstein, and Gerkopel said, yeah, it's still true. Estimated 16,500 NSAID-related deaths occur among patients with rheumatoid arthritis or osteoarthritis every year in the U.S. But then notice the little red thing there. Furthermore, the mortality statistics do not include deaths ascribed to use of over-the-counter NSAIDs which is why the number at the top of the slide, 40,000 deaths a year, is in play. And many people think it's too low. Anybody read about this in the middle of our opioid epidemic of overdoses? Anybody? You read about this in a newspaper? Did it say how many deaths there were? Oh. Looking at this, yes. But anybody who look at it on TV or in a journal or a newspaper that tells you, oh, how terrible the country is. All right, so here's the real opioid crisis. This is what Dr. Zakharoff was talking about, but this actually goes deeper. In March of 2017, the CDC said painkillers, prescription opioids, are no longer driving the opioid epidemic. And then in January of this year, a member of the Cato Institute. The Cato Institute is a very well-established think tank. Jeff Singer said, stop calling it an opioid crisis. It's a heroin and fentanyl crisis. Again, January of this year. And what are we doing? We're still calling it, you know, it's all our fault. It's all the doctor's fault. Now, the National Center for Health Statistics, NCHS, group to remember, they stated there were 63,600 overdose deaths in 2016. We've already seen CDC numbers that are different. 20,000 secondary to fentanyl, more than 15,000 secondary to heroin, and only 14,700 secondary to prescription opiates. Remember, with their conservative number, Seth and his group said 17,086. Now, I gave part of this talk, including some of these slides, at a pain weekend, and sitting in the audience was a woman that worked at the National Center for Health Statistics, and she came up to me after the lecture and said, you're right on. Everything you said was right on because politics is involved. Here is a slide showing synthetic opioid deaths. What's a synthetic opioid? Fentanyl? Yeah. Now, among more than 64,000 deaths in 2016, apparently, sharpest increase was among deaths related to fentanyl analog synthetics, okay? The NCHS noted deaths from fentanyl increased a mere 18% a year. That's enormous. They found, the NCHS, death rate was steady from heroin from 1999 to 2014, but then it went up 19% a year. And again, after increasing 13% a year, deaths from prescription pain meds stabilized 11 years ago at 3% a year. Okay? DEA we know about, but here's one of the issues that you all need to remember. Since 2010, now pretty much I think there may be one state, Bob, correct me, do all states or there's one state that they all, okay. 50 states now have patient pharmacy records, and in some jurisdictions like mine. I'm sorry? Missouri is the one I was thinking of. All right. It's still a mess. The point is, while we're supposed to look at these records every time before we give a patient an opioid, the state is looking at us, looking at the patients. And if we don't look, they know. 
this young lady here is saying, yes, she knows. Somebody call you? You get a nasty gram? From the Texas board, if you're not looking at it, looking at the PMP. Yes, ma'am. One of the things they mentioned yesterday when they talked about coming down to the five days, how are people going to tell? Well, in New Jersey, if you write a script for more than five days and the pharmacy looks at the PMP and doesn't see that they were on it before, they're assuming that this is an acute situation and they shouldn't be on it, and then you'll get a notice. Yes. So that's how they're tracking it. People were saying yesterday, oh, I don't know how they'll track that. That's how they track it. I'm sorry. You are doctors who are dealing with the DEA. The, the, every one of the 103 district courts in America have, a, have an agent assigned to look every, and do analytics on the prescription drug monitoring program. And if they saw, see a primary care doctor who was writing 30 scripts the previous month and now they're writing 60, it's the greatest investigative tool the government now has. Big Brother's truly watching you. And their stated goal to me was we are going to stop primary care doctors from writing opioid prescriptions. If you truly need them, go to a pain management doctor. And, and I said, well, look, fentanyl is, is heroin's the problem here. They said, yeah, but 80% of the people who use fentanyl and heroin started on opioids that a primary care doctor gave. I don't see any evidence of that, but that's the story they wrote to me. There is no evidence. Thank you. Did everybody hear what this gentleman had to say? Very important. Thank you, sir. Well, let's cut to the chase. We're being watched. Okay. When patients are reduced to non-functionality after being functional on 200 milligrams of morphine a day, they have a job. They're keeping their family fed. Everything is copacetic. They're not asking for frequent refills. They're not having failed drug tests. They're not having any problems with drug misuse, abuse, or addiction. And they get nailed down to 50 milligrams from 200, and they can't function, and they can't find a doctor to give them pain meds. Even the 50. What do they do? They go out to the street. One of the problems, thanks to DEA, because actually, when you think about it, and there's a slide in a couple of slides ahead, this appears almost planned, you think? By the DEA reducing the amount of pain meds that are created or manufactured a year, where's the first place they're not going to go? To the street, because the hospitals can't get them. So the patients who used to be able to go out and score some oxycaca on the streets can't do it. They can find heroin, fentanyl-laced heroin, or fentanyl, or carfentanyl. And if they die, well, they're just drug addicts, instead of people trying to maintain function. Now, there appears to be this unfettered plan the intrusion on doctor-patient relationships is all about physician self-help. None of us want to go to jail. And we're placed between a rock and a hard place because, as we were just talking about, people are watching us. They're watching us with everything we do. Now, here's the latest data from the CDC. Okay, again, the CDC. After 2010, there was a significant change. Here it is. See that green line up there? That's all opioid deaths. See that red line? That's the number of prescriptions. Now, I, tr I keep scratching my head trying to figure how the prescription opioids that are written down at 70 will give 130% deaths. Can't be possible. It is a heroin and fentanyl crisis. Now, we're getting down to the end here. Dr. Maria Oquendo, president of the American Psych Association, 1718. She made a quote, 2015. In 2015, 
Over 33,000 Americans died from opioids, either prescription drugs or heroin, or in many cases, more powerful synthetic opioids like fentanyl. Hidden behind the terrible epidemic of opioid overdose deaths looms the fact that many of these deaths are far from accidental. They are suicides. And this is coming from the president of the American Psych Association. I have no reason to doubt what she says. This is the thing, if, I, if we had time, I'd play this from Dan Laird. Now, the naughty 90s. Here we're winding up. Back in the 90s, when I had this very large clinic, and I kept it for 26 years, the issue was the insurance companies took away all adjunctive pain care. I know that for a fact because I had it all in my office and found, first, they wouldn't pay for psych. A year later, they wouldn't pay for PT. A year later, you could forget occupational therapy. And this has continued, and nobody talks about this. Has anybody read anything about insurance carriers not paying for other types of pain medicine or pain care that our patients need? Here's a possible solution. This is what I did for 26 years. Studies found in 1995, some of these slides were actually, I put them together decades ago, but they're still very pertinent today. 1995, only 6% of patients treated by pain specialists, that 6% equals 176,850 patients, were treated in an interdisciplinary pain center. These patients were sent to these facilities as a last resort. They had mean seven-year history of pain with $13,284 per patient per year being spent, okay, on non-surgical pain. But then they had 1.7 surgeries by average, and that was in 1994 to $1995 dollars of $15,000 per surgery. So that's a ton of money more than what it would cost going to an interdisciplinary pain center. So the cost of health care for these patients, only 6% of them, was greater than $20 billion. But the cost treatment for interdisciplinary pain centers was greater than $1.4 billion, average cost $8,100 per 176,850 patients. Medical cost savings after one year for these patients was greater than $1.87 billion. Okay. These patients were clinically effective. You have people like the Cochrane Reviews, the Bellier Reviews, with multiple reviews stating interdisciplinary pain centers had A1, type A, top-of-the-line, evidence-based medicine. The problem is, another study, there's a whole slew of studies, you can read this, but this one notes that sending a patient to an interdisciplinary pain center for about $12,000 and getting them back to work was a hell of a lot cheaper than the $75,000 it costs for that patient to return to work after a back surgery. There's some numbers. You think people would be interested. You think insurance companies would want to pay for this. Turk and Burwinkle. Okay, Dennis Turk is a great guy. He's at University of Washington in Seattle. And he said, Gary, there's an epidemic of, epi of uh, mural dyslexia, which he defined as the inability to read the handwriting on the wall. <laughs> mural dyslexia. You now know it, okay? Sort of like seeing something bad. You can't forget that. Mural dyslexia. There's a whole bunch of information on the appropriateness and the positive evidence-based medicine for pain of all types. And Robbins, for instance, he did one study that was interesting. Before the end of most interdisciplinary pain centers, they would have cutouts. Okay? Insurance companies would find, all right, we're going to send all our patients here for psych, and they can have the rest of the interdisciplinary pain care here. And what Robbins found out is after a year, patients that went there for PT were back non-functional, whereas the patients that had everything in one place, it was fully interdisciplinary, were functional and remained so for greater than a year. 
So functional restoration is the key. All right. Uh, dual diagnosis, what I was very heavily doing was treating dual diagnosis patients with addiction and or pain, both through an interdisciplinary pain center. Unfortunately, since Norm Harden and Steve Stamos left RIC, it's gone down. There's no place, there was, during the latter 90s, my center was always one of the top five listed in the websites. But now, there's nothing. There really is no place. It used to be RIC was my go-to place. There's now no place to send these patients. So, two slides. In summary, it appears that we must give minimal dosage of opioids who need more. There must be fewer medications available, thank you, DEA, and fewer physicians to prescribe them. And the unintended consequence of pushing functional patients into non-functionality and having them have to go on the street and die, possibly, it's all their fault because they're drug addicts. Three months ago, a patient asked me, is there a plan to thin the herd? Are people trying to kill chronic pain patients so that nobody's getting opioids? I didn't have an answer for them. And I got this email. This is my last slide. Last week. People I see at the pain clinic don't want to treat my pain. I used Butrans for years, and now because people are paranoid and stupid, everyone who hurts gets to suffer, I guess. If you have any idea, I'm happy to hear them. I'm just starting to give up on walking or moving without pain for the rest of my life. Thank you for your help. This is a patient with uh, torsion of the spine and significant uh, myofascial problems secondary to that, and I was seeing her for headache. This is what's happening in a pain center. They refuse to give Butrans, which is still Schedule 3. I'll end there and say... We have a lot of work to do, and it's up to us to do it. And I thank you for your time.